Okay. A couple of weeks ago, something crazy happened, I guess. And, and I didn't really follow us that much, but then someone called me about it last week and I was like, okay, I don't really understand it, but I know someone who probably will. Cause he is like super in, in invested into listening into these things all the time. Can you explain to myself and to our viewers, the Silicon Valley bank situation? Because I really don't get it. Mm-hmm. I don't understand how they talk about all this money is over $250,000. I'm, I'm thinking to myself, okay, how are all their trans? That's a lot of transactions to be over a quarter million dollars. Is it just because a lump sum goes in there and it's only the deposits? Is the bank still in existence? In two minutes or less, can you explain to me <laughs> and the viewers and maybe Jetty, our guest today, what exactly yeah. went on during all of that? Yeah, it's really fascinating and, and in terms of what happened. So two minutes is going to be tough, but so let's just go. Silicon Valley Bank, they bank, it's some crazy market share. They have like 90% of startups that have raised money bank with Silicon Valley Bank. So if you uh, look back at two years ago when everybody was raising money and valuations were extremely high, everybody, as companies close those rounds, they were depositing money into Silicon Valley Bank to the tune of like $200 billion worth of capital was then deposited into the bank. The way banks make money is that legally they only have to, they only have to keep so much money on hand to handle a certain percentage of withdrawals if people wanted to make those withdrawals. So they kept, I want to say, $14 billion on hand. And then the other uh, $186 billion, they could then loan that money out. They can invest that money in different ways. And that's how the, the banks make money. So what they what Silicon Valley Bank did is they bought long-term uh, treasuries, uh, so they, they didn't mature for 10 years. So that, that money was then locked up for a period of 10 years uh, in order for it to hit its full maturity to get the return on that investment. If they pull that money out beforehand, then there's penalties to be paid and uh, they can't recognize all of the money that that went out. So what happened was like people then caught when or what was happening then, companies stopped raising money, um, they stop raising money and then they had to they have their monthly uh, burn that they have to uh, that they have to pay for payroll, whatever the case is. And so then the banks or the companies start pulling money from withdrawing money from Silicon Valley Bank. And they're pulling money at a rate faster than what they have on hand. And so then word started getting out that Silicon Valley Bank may not be solvent. And so then once that happened, then everyone started withdrawing their money before they ran out of money because each account is only assured up to $250,000 from the FDIC. And then that's, uh, so when that happens, that's what's called a bank run. And, and then the Fed had to step in because people were trying to pull more money than the bank had on hand. But what bank could probably facilitate all of that? Any, like not necessarily like the 200 billion, but I'm saying like, yeah. what if, if every bank, you know, Let's say I bank of the Bank of America and everyone that's a Bank of America customer decided to do that exact same thing. They would have that same problem. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so like people are coming down on uh, Silicon Valley Bank in the sense of, well, they should have had, you know, they, they, they were they had too much in area, uh, too much money in certain accounts that they couldn't pull, uh, pull from to have mm-hmm. that. Um, so but the thing about it is, though, I mean, like it was it's pretty low risk stuff, but like. When you inter- treasury stuff, I remember. Yeah. Well, yeah. and because the thing is, man, it's like so. As in, on the other side, you have interest rates that the Fed continues to raise, and as the interest rates go up, then the value of um, of those long term treasuries went down because there there's an offsetting balance between those. So there there was multiple things uh, that happens, which makes it so fascinating because of interest rates and the amount of money that was raised a couple of years ago. And it, it really is just a, a whole mixture of a lot of different things that all, all happened at once. But that's essentially what happened. Do, do you think that something like that will bring in today's guest, Jetty from Bobo Collective, which is Black owned Black operated. Do you think something like that could happen here in, in Virginia? Or is it really a big VC capital 
issue San Francisco Silicon Valley style of a thing. Like yeah, the, people I, I, who, the businesses here, do they need to worry about a scenario like that where their money is? I don't necessarily there. think from a um, from like a capital raise startup standpoint, we, we don't have that kind of uh, density per se. But I want to say that like from a commercial real estate standpoint, I think that banks have certain things in place so that you can't leverage only, but you only can have so much money of in individuals. You only can leverage so much against property that people own uh, or have mortgaged. Um, you, you did a good job at explaining that, Tim. Thank you for for. <laughs> no, I, I, I tried my best, uh, it, it, but it, it is a super complex. Yeah. Um, so I would say that there is a trickle down effect even um, with Silicon Valley Bank hosting some of the startup ecosystem things that are happening here in Virginia. So is it gonna directly affect us? Maybe not, but there is a ripple effect that I think will um, affect different businesses, especially ones that power um, the ecosystem in 757 for a couple of years to come. I do believe that. Yeah, it's uh, it's, it's interesting to follow everything. I mean, the, the good news is I want to say like 99 point something percent of all of these situations, the federal government has backed the account owner. And so like the, the everyday person, like the three of us here, we, we have not lost any money per se. The, gov, the, the government will back that beyond the $250,000 in FDIC insurance. Now, rightfully so, I think that like the the people that own the the investors, the shareholders of Silicon Valley Bank, you know, those folks, they're not getting bailed out um, because they were the decision makers in terms of how to what to invest in and uh, assume the risk that did not pay off. But yeah, there is going to be some longer term things to flush out. Well, I, I do want to point out that Silicon Valley Bank did invest in quite a few minority initiatives. Um, yeah, so they did. I, they did. That, that's what I mean. Uh, definitely, they were a big proponent of DEI initiatives. Yeah. So it, it can, was, it, Wasn't it to the tune of like $54 billion or something like that? It, it, wasn't, it was a really high number. Wow. Yeah. So there's, some, there's a ripple effect here, especially for underrepresented founders. I, I worry about what that looks like, especially as people pivot away from DEI initiatives as, you know, economics and the economy becomes a bigger concern. So. Yeah. It is really interesting just in terms of like what you are doing, what Blair Durham is doing with, with Black Brand and the Black Chamber of Commerce. Uh, it, it's I'm, I am a really I'm a big fan of uh, you, you, you see a need. You find a solution and then you implement that solution. So talk to us about Bia, uh, Bobo and, 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 and how, what's the genesis of that and, uh, and share your story, if you will. Okay. Um, so as you eloquently stated, Bobo stands for Black Owned, Black Operated. And then, so that represents basically who we service and who the service is provided for. And then collective, which is how we choose to tackle that ecosystem building that you kind of referred to with Blair Durham and Black Brand. So the Bobo Collective is a Black Owned supply chain um, raw suppliers, manufacturers, third-party logistics, and then myself, which is the brokerage end of that collective. And what we do is we help Black-owned consumer packaged goods companies produce their product at a scale that will allow them to enter the retail market. And then we certify that the product is Black-owned and we pre-sell it to companies uh, that are doing amazing things like the 15% pledge, which is where companies promise to diversify their supply chain offerings on their shelf. Um, we specifically target those companies to sell our products to. Um, but we also have interest from companies that are just interested in diversifying the offerings on their shelves, period, uh, regardless of who it is that produces it. So that's kind of what we do. Historically, has there been a, 
I don't know, a sticker on something that says black owned or something like that. Like how, how, how would someone even know? Like, for example, I didn't realize that in Virginia, the richest person is the family who created the Mars bar or that the Mars family. I had no idea that I've been eating candy my entire life, obviously. Like I didn't realize like that was from Virginia or something like that. You know, uh, Budweiser is uh, what a Milwaukee product, something like that. St. Louis, I believe. St. Louis, St. Louis. Yeah. So like, how, how, how do you know, is, is there like a local version of, oh, this is from a female founder, a black founder, you, you know, is, is there something like that out there? Um, or has there been, is that, is that how you kind of see the retail portion of it? How do you, how do you uh, let people know who produced this, if you will? Um, so there's two parts to my answer for that question. So there are certifications to let you know that something's minority owned or woman owned, but those certifications kind of lean towards the professional. Uh, but then there are certifications that let you know that something is good quality, like say like Michelin, right? That's a certification program we don't think about when you see Michelin four star at a restaurant, you know that that's going to be a good restaurant to eat at based on their standards. So we want to create and kind of um, recreate that certain uh, type of uh, certification behavior for consumers when it comes to Black-owned products, because historically, um, Black-owned products have not had much representation on the shelves. But what we're doing to make that a reality is we're kind of implementing technology with it. So we are working with a company called Chainparency, um, which does blockchain. Um, so it would allow us to track and trace our product from end to end and tell the consumer a story. So that's the second part of my answer. Consumers are really wanting to know where their products came from, how it was sourced, was it fair trade? They want to know the story behind what they're buying because they want to be informed. And I don't want to say the word because it's kind of woke. People want to know what's going on, right? And so Bobo is trying to tackle all of those uh, factors, giving them products that diversify. We kind of, I'll use an example. We think of Bobo as a big table, right? And so capitalism is another kind of table. It's maybe a long rectangular table where some people eat, some people don't. It depends on how quick you get to the party. But with this round table example of Bobo, we're trying to make it so everybody who comes to the table, whether that person's a buyer, a consumer, um, a manufacturer, a supplier, can get something from what we're offering and also bring something to the table and offer something themselves. And so that's how we're like, like the certification process goes along those lines. How does it help every partner or person that's in our, um, at our table, right? That's kind of how we look at it. We help the buyers who are looking for black owned products because they need more products to um, fill their shelves. If you think about the pandemic and how the shelves were empty, it made it clear that there needed to be more people offering product, not just the same five companies, you know, providing product for everyone. So we're giving them a needed service. And then we're also providing the certification product uh, process to ensure quality. And then for the consumer, we're telling that story for them that what you're buying supports black businesses at every level from the farmers that we have in our collective in Nigeria and Ghana uh, to the black manufacturer that's right here in the United States that enriches the product and gets it to you. And then obviously, um, you know, at the shelves that you're used to buying your things from. So I think it's an amazing story, but as far as certification goes back to your question, um, I feel like there is a need, but there really hasn't been anyone who's tackled that need up until now. Super interesting. What, what's been the response to this point? So, okay. So for the suppliers in uh, Africa, we've had nothing but, but I want to, first of all, just give so much so many flowers to the suppliers in our program. They've been nothing but generous and kind. And so one of the cool things that's happening with us is the ministry of agriculture in um Abuja, which is the capital of Nigeria, has extended the offer to allow us to become official, which just means that anytime somebody wants to join our program, they would recommend or somebody wants to do something like what we're doing, they would recommend us first. So that's pretty dope. So our suppliers have been amazing. Um, our manufacturers, of which we have four Black-owned manufacturers, and if you know anything about Black-owned manufacturers, that's hard to find. <laughs> um, they've been amazing, too, because we are a startup. And so that means we have to constantly pivot and shift our priorities. And so they've been working with us for about two years and they've been shifting right along with us. It's very fluid as to what our needs are. So I would say the supply end is pretty great, um, but we haven't launched publicly yet. Um, we're still working on that. 
we have four women who are in our program who are going along with us and making their product and getting it certified. So I'll know later on. I know uh, right now the people I'm working with are amazing. And then, of course, 757 Startup, all hail. <laughs> um, they've been great. So I have no complaints. <laughs> You mentioned, you know, not a lot of uh, black manufacturers. Is that just because it was something when they grew up that they weren't like pushed towards it? Like, wh why do you think that problem exists in there? Or and and if that one is is you, you don't know the answer. Like, what? Same thing with retail. Then, like, why aren't is it, is it just because this is something that they didn't want to go into at, at some point, and now there's a bigger opportunity, and they they see that opportunity. Like, what what has changed that is is fixing that problem or or allowing that that challenge to to be in existence? Um, that is a fantastic question because I sometimes ask myself, is it the chicken or egg thing? Because um, it feels like that sometimes, right? I think a few factors kind of come into play. I know people don't like to talk about social justice movements, but uh, for some reason, Black Lives Matter really drove home to Black consumers the need to buy Black. Um, it just is what it is. It just was a confluence of different things that happened at one time. Um, that was one thing. And I think that that kind of spurred retailers to, because African-Americans have traditionally been very adamant consumers, like they, we are a very, our, um, our demographic, I just want to use like the right word, right? Our demographic has been very large consumers, but like historically, we have been disproportionately underserved in the things in, that we buy. Um, so we buy a lot of things, but none of those things or a lot of those things don't represent, we call it the three R's. We don't get retail investment in our neighborhoods. We don't get representation um, on the products that we do buy a lot of. And then we also don't get products that reflect or have an accurate reflection of what our needs and preferences are. And so what I think is happening is those I think things are happening at once. There is this initiative to get more black consumers on the shelves. We have COVID, so we don't have a lot of stuff on the shelf, right? So retailers like, we need stuff. Um, and then we've got black consumers who are like, well, I'm not going to buy anything if it's not for me on the shelf. Right. And so I think what happened is kind of, I mean, I don't want to sound religious because that's not who I am, but maybe a more spiritual thing is it just was the right time. And right. so I was this thing alongside of a timing that was happening. And I just happened to be in the right place. It's interesting that you mentioned that the first time I ever maybe grasped this, you know, as a white guy, I don't, I don't see this. And I, and I clearly haven't shaved in a long time, but I remember I was listening to Jason Calacanis's this week in startups and he had um, a fellow, um, I can't recall his name, but I think he has a company called Bevel and he created razors for, for black men and maybe black women at this time too. Um, and he was like, the way that a normal, let's say, Gillette razor is made isn't good for a black person's skin. It, it creates a lot of razor bumps. And I was like, oh, that's really interesting. I never thought that just because someone was a different race that maybe there was um, a razor that would be different than that. And so it's we think of these things, and that's just that's just razor blades, something that maybe, maybe most people use every day. Definitely not me, but... Um, that's just one little aspect of it. What else is there that there's this opportunity where there, there's tons of individuals who have a different side to the equation? To me, that screams tons of opportunity where I think we just generally create, I mean, it's even, it could be for clothes, you know, the way that someone looks in clothes, that could be a different size, the razor blades, you know, maybe a brush, who, who, who knows what it is? But it's, it, it's just interesting that we, we, me as a white guy thinks of it like this and heck there's a ton of opportunity there that I never thought of. And it's just, I'm with you. There's a ton of, there's a ton of problems out there that need to be solved. And uh, I, I'm excited to see what kind of uh, solutions are created, not just with razor blades, but with, with anything. Um, I have to say like, whenever I talk to people, there is another piece to the answer I gave before where when I was first pitching this company, it wasn't time because people would say, well, why does it have to be black owned? Why can't it just be like the best company, right? You just pick the best product and then put it out there. And I had to say in my pitch, I was like, well, the two aren't mutually exclusive. So there is a sort of um, perception that black brands are not equipped to be able to get on the shelves and compete 
uh, at a national level, like or at a, at a retail store level where you have the minimum order amount. So that was a barrier too. I meant to answer that earlier. So just speaking to what you were saying, I use this example of when I was a little girl that goes really well with what you said. So I used to go to um, an all white school when I was a child. I was like the only black child in that um, neighborhood. We just had moved into a subdevelopment. It is what it is. Um, but I remember picture day. So this is just something that you may not have thought of, but it happens. And so on picture day, they usually have like this little black comb that they put on the table so that if your hair is kind of messy and all kids' hair is messy because they've been playing all day, you can fix your hair. And I remember like distinctly, this was like what they call like a moment, right? Where you, it stays in your brain of looking at the comb and being like, I can't do anything with my hair with that. Like I can't fix my hair because it, at this time it was wild. And um, I don't think that like, I always say this, this is part of my pitch too. I don't think that the people who made the that arrangement to help the kids fix their hair were thinking about me. They weren't thinking about me at all. I think that's the point. So yeah, there's a huge opportunity for black businesses and black consumer packaged goods because there is a viewpoint that's missing. There's a person at the table who hasn't been able to speak about what the services you're providing looks like for them. And so like in the startup world, there's just a huge, there's like trillion dollar industry literally waiting here of black products that need to be made simply because nobody thought to think provide about lighting. Think about lighting, right? We were just talking about that before we went live. Like if, and I remember this, I think I first learned this from Jeremy Johnson. And um, he was like, if, if, if you take a picture of me, he was a photographer at the time. He's like, look, if you're, if you're dark uh, complexion, you can't have a certain light behind you or else no one's going to be able to see you. You're going to, it, it's, it's going to be washed out. And so it's, I don't know who creates phones and cameras, but maybe they should put some more like diversity in that. Uh, and then one last thing on this is people who talk about niching being the right thing. All, all you've really done is create a niche that's, that's black owned businesses. I don't understand why people just because it's a, uh, it's, it's a, it's a color thing that it becomes an issue in that case. It's like, well, it was fine a niche here when it was just like, or working with B2B lawyers. But now if it's working with, you know, uh, a black owned business, it's an issue. What's the difference there? There is none. It seems a little comical if you really think about it anyway, soapbox rant over, but it just it's, it seems I agree. It seems a little comical. So. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I really, I love what you're doing. Uh, and, and and a lot of it just, uh, to me, is ignorantly speaking, is awareness. I mean, it's just, and, and you're able to bring in an awareness. And I think that people are, this is something that people are going to be able to jump on board and support. So when people want to support the different uh, Black-owned, Black-operated businesses that you are Supporting is it going to start out as a marketplace where it's just an online platform where you can buy those products, or is it, are you looking to go into physical stores to begin yes. with? Uh, how or how can people actually start purchasing uh, the products when the, when they become available? So because we're a startup, what we're asking from people is to follow us at bubblecollective.com and also on Instagram so that they can actually see the product journey of the product creators in our program. And as we place it in physical stores, we will let them know where they can purchase it. That's really what we're asking from the consumer because we are really, um, like I said, we're trying to tell a story. And so it's, it's a long story, but we want to make sure that they follow it and that they're able to see the beginning of the middle and then the end. All right. And are you going to be focused... Um... 757 Hampton Roads, Norfolk, Virginia Beach first, and then expand uh, the, your presence. Uh, where, where, where is the first? Do you have a, a first store that is targeted um, when you do launch? Yes, we are looking regional first. So it will be in this um, southern eastern region. Um, but again, we're going to let consumers know as we grow which specific stores it's going to be in once we know for sure. Yeah, I just see that uh, this is something people are going to really want to get behind and support um i'm re i'm really excited for what's in store you, you no mentioned I, I don't i don't mean this towards silicon valley bank but you mentioned this during silicon valley bank you talked about how they were big supporters in dei um talked about black lives matter you know back in in, in 2020 the real the real crux to that um and just the 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 continuing growth of of I think DEI and, and really getting behind the black culture and stuff like that. As we go into, you know, a recession or a downturn or whatever, where people were spending money on DEI and stuff like that. Do you, do you see that that's something that they're not 
continuing with because it's not just a check of the box anymore. I mean, I think a lot of people do things because they think they're supposed to do it, but then when times get tough, they, they remove themselves from that situation. Do, where do you think we are in, in the whole continuing growth of that? Do we see it go down? Do we see it continue to grow? Where, where do you see kind of the DEI in 2023 and beyond? I see DEI right now um, becoming a thing that they've checked off and they're like, I've done it, check. So what my company wants to do is we want to reward companies that made that promise by giving them consumers who will support them. Um, so I do see it being something that was like an agenda, like we support this and now we're on to the next thing. And I mean, fairly, fair enough, we've got a lot of problems in the U.S., so it's not always fair to focus on one thing. However, Black consumers, I have no doubt that they're going to support this. So it's as far as DEI on the consumer end, it's going to grow. That's what I anticipate as far as where we can go um, projection-wise. And um, it's going to be, this is going to be a very, very, um, I don't want to say unicorn idea because it feels like somebody should have done it already. But I think that the, the market that we have, the potential that we have is unlimited. Africa is one of the fastest growing middle classes in the world. So when you talk about Black-owned products, you're literally tapping into an untapped market. So... I don't see it ending on the consumer end. I do, however, see it ending on maybe the investing side, but I'm not so worried about that because products sell. So I'm just going to always tackle our business with that saying we've got good products and we've got people to sell them to, you know, so I'm not really worried about an investor who doesn't want to give it to us because they feel like it's not part of their DEI initiative. Yeah. I, I do think that there's, there's some timing involved as well that, that works out for your benefit, just in terms of like, the ability uh, to create a marketplace that is specific to this. A few years ago, that that was there was a lot there was a lot of obstacles that you had to overcome from a technology standpoint. Um, so now th those barriers to entry, I think, are greatly reduced that, that help with that. So I think that there's a lot. Timing is really something that is overlooked when it comes to a startup's journey. And um, a very popular TED talk was saying that 42% of, of businesses success is timing. I mean, I, I yeah, because like <laughs> Uber wouldn't have been impossible without the smartphone. Uh, you know, Netflix, what, yeah, they started as mailing the CDs uh, in the mail and exchanging it that way before bandwidth was available. So timing, timing has a lot to do with a lot of different things. And, and this is, this holds true for this as well. And, I mean, if you look at the different, the different uh, areas, like so, like being carbon neutral and knowing you know how much car uh, carbon in the products you're buying, that is really important. And now with black owned, that is really important. So uh, I think this is really the beginning of a wave that 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 is going to put the power in the bar, uh, buyer's hands, and they can make that determination. And and stories sell. That's something that we always talk about when people are pitching their business. And the story behind what you are telling and the story behind the products, that's that that speaks to me as opposed to where we face now. You go into uh, pick your grocery store and it is the five parent companies that own everything that you have to choose from. So with that, where what are you looking at in terms of price parity between you know, it is like the product that you sell? Is that going to be on par with what can be purchased at a Kroger or a Walmart or pick a grocery store? Or have you found through talking to the, to your potential customers that, hey, we're willing to pay for a dollar or two more than because we want to support black owned. That's what means most to us. So like anything, it's a fine balance. Um, I obviously entered into this. I'm not one of those people that's it's not for profit. We're for profit because we feel like, um, I don't know if you guys like Harry and Meghan. This is kind of like a side piece, but I often admire Harry, Prince Harry and his wife, Meghan Markle. Um, I often admire the ways in which they use their for-profit enterprises to support their not-for-profit enterprises, right? So they're more like social philanthropists. I feel like that's the same for me. So though my heart is in the right place, we're doing this for-profit and we want everybody who's a part of our table to benefit. So the balance for me is to make sure that we are competitive with um, products that are already on the shelves, but we have seen from the interviews that we've done with consumers that they are willing to pay more, specifically those in the millennial and Gen Z 
um, demographic um, for products that are black owned as long as they're co comparable to the products that they already buy. So I will, we're going to try to find that beautiful balance between cost of goods the, you know, the cost of goods and getting it to the United States and packaging it in sustainable packaging um, with making sure that almost everybody can afford. Yeah, um, and I think timing-wise, that's another thing that's happening, right? Um, I mean, a lot of people, uh, for whatever reason, you have Apple leaving China and putting stuff in uh, factories in India. Uh, and I, I do think that there's a, a bigger push to bring manufacturing back to the United States. Uh, and people are learning that there's more to life than maximizing profits and having it built for the cheapest price possible. Not to mention, going back to the carbon aspect of having something produced in China to save a few pennies, then the environmental impacts you have to ship it all the way across the world um, it's, it's another timing aspect, uh, that benefits you. Well, I wanted to add, so we have this thing that we call in our company, we call it chips. So it's called cheap imported products. Uh, so if you imagine somebody just taking chips and just consuming them, the fact that we call consumers is indicative of what it is that I'm talking about with chips, right? Just cheap imported products. And we're living amidst our garbage or exporting it to different countries. This is a totally preventable problem. So if by making it a couple cents more, maybe like 50 cents more, and having a product that lasts that you can refill or you can bury in the ground and plant something, that's worth it. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to make it worth it so that you get the things that you love, but it's not at the expense of our lives, right? And the planet that we live in and the ways and the quality of life that our children are going to grow up in. And even it would create a new set of problems for them to deal with. So yeah, we're just a little more, you know, just a, just a little bit more of an investment and you have a better outcome. So that's what we're trying to get people involved in the collective. You can bring something to the table. You can put in a little bit more and make sure that your behaviors and your consumer behaviors, your buyer behaviors, actually have a lasting outcome because as somebody who is concerned about the environment, the first thing you feel is overwhelmed as to what it is you can do to solve the problem or help solve the problem. Well, that's one of the things you can contribute towards companies that are a part of the movement. I mean, not to mention gas fluctuates, eggs fluctuate in price, several other things fluctuate in price. So it's always interesting when people talk about, oh, I would give a little bit of extra money where it's like, well, if you really needed this thing, if you really wanted this thing, you're, you're already paying for it anyway, um, somewhere, right? Maybe, maybe this week's gas was a little bit cheaper. So you can put that into in, into the Bobo Collective or or whatever. But it's it's always interesting when, when that conversation comes up and it's like, well, you know, if you really need eggs, you're going to spend, you know, the five bucks instead of the four bucks. There's your, you know, there's your buck right there to, to, to spend somewhere else. Um, I first met you about this time last year uh, at Start Peninsula the um, during the micro pitch uh, competition. Um, it's interesting because you mentioned that you have come a long way from there, that you've grown a lot from that, that you maybe struggled a little uh, getting the, the pitch out. I'm, I'm interested in how you kind of came to that conclusion that you needed to to you know maneuver your your thinking that you you have this vision that you wanted others to do and, and what you've done to improve that over the last 12 months or so. <laughs> so um, it's interesting. All through the pandemic, I had been picking my company and I was getting, for any founders out there, I see you and I am with you. But um, I was getting really frustrated because people were not as excited about my concept as I was. And it was all very mechanic. I would tell them about Black consumers and how they weren't being serviced. And I kept disconnecting myself from the story. So I think what I've learned in the time, even since I've pitched you guys, is my company was born out of me. I'm a boutique owner, or I was, and um, I try to get my product on the shelf. And so I learned this process of what it is that's needed in order to get your product made. And this is kind of where Bobo was formed. It wasn't a light bulb moment. It was kind of an evolution of my skill sets and talents. And then I was like, well, I can do this. And I know I have the charisma to do it. And I know this is what I care about. And this can solve this problem that I care about, which is Black economic empowerment, right? 
So I think that what happened, the light bulb moment was actually me figuring out that I can't disconnect myself from my company. One of the things I liked to do before was I can't stand the cult of personality. I know Elon Musk is like a hot buzzword right now because he could be his own personality. <laughs> but I think that that was what I didn't want, right? I didn't want my company to be so intrinsically connected to me that people would disconnect from what was important and what I'm trying to do because of me. Um, I think that's a form of imposter syndrome. I'm not sure, but that was what was happening. And so when I started to figure out that this company and what I've built and what we're building wouldn't exist without me, they're intrinsically tied is when I started, stop worrying about that cult of personality piece that I was kind of like, hung up on like this is me this bubble is me we are tied and in order for people to get excited about my company they have to get excited about the person who created it and that's what i've been trying to do now is just be authentic myself and show them that this company is born out of somebody who is genuine somebody who is a hard worker a step-by-step -step, slow learner you know i love in the tech you know this world start of everything you know, and I'm a slow and steady wins the race kind of gal. And that's not the kind of messaging that is pleasant for people who want to get their money and get out. But I love that that has built something amazing, even though I didn't have like the chops to step into supply chain because this is a very insular world. So, yeah, I just had to like get over myself and be like, they don't know me. And so they're not going to know Google until they know me. And I no think one, the more people, the more no they one. like the <laughs> No one's going to pitch a better a business better than themselves most of the time, right? But it, it is interesting if you think about some of the biggest brands out there. You know, I would say several of them are tied to a person that you can think of, but several of them aren't. So I, I, it's interesting that you came to the conclusion that you did that it was a necessity for you to be a part of the brand. Um, I don't knock you for that. I think it's it, there, there's a ton of um, there's a, um, a a ton of you know. Uh, brain fart. There's a, there's a, there's a ton of case studies that say, yes, you're right. You do need to, you know, be associated with the brand. It also allows you, you know, when, when you get some success individually, you can promote the brand and, and, and vice versa. I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a healthy thing to do. So it's, it's interesting. Tim, yeah. you know? I want to add something to that. The balance to that is because this is a, a company that predicated on social mission, it is kind of important for our branding that people get to know me and how passionate I am about it. We want to be B Corps certified. We're talking about value systems when we're creating this process. So to some degree, yeah, you want to know that the person who's creating this cares about what they're telling you to care about. I think that's maybe the difference between me saying like uh, a PNG, where who they can put out, you know, anything and you'll buy it because they're PNG, right? So that's, I think, the difference between me yeah, it's, I mean, it's this whole topic of imposter syndrome is really, it's fascinating, especially in the startup world, because, gosh, I, I mean, I, I'm just smiling here because, yeah, I mean, I go, I go through that a lot myself in the sense of- How, like, how do you I, define that imposter syndrome? Well, I mean, I look at it in the sense of, uh, so, so let's just look at the angel investing, for example. Yeah, I know a lot about it. But at the same time, um, I know I can't. There, there's there, there's a lot of people that can write a whole lot bigger check than I can write. Um, I know that there's people out there that have seen returns a whole lot larger than what I have seen. Uh, their bank accounts are a whole lot larger than mine. But at the same time, you know, it's like I put I put my work in. I put my reps in. And I've helped people uh, raise a lot of money. And so from that standpoint, you know, it's like I don't necessarily want to be uh, going out there and advertising myself as the, the biggest, best, brightest person because, you know, I haven't proven myself yet. But I know I put a lot of work into it. And, uh, and I, I think, Jetty, that you're, you're probably in a same, similar situation in the sense of, hey, this is a passion area. Um, so that's how I would describe that, you know, that imposter syndrome, you know, I mean, it's like, yeah, I, I just, I'm just a guy of action as opposed to, I never wanted to be the face of anything, but what I had to learn the hard way. And I'm still after 12 years, I'm still figuring this out that it's just like, whether if I like it or not, I am the face. And, uh, it, that's tough for me. Cause I'm, I'm, that's just, it's not really my personality and I'm trying to grow into it, but it's just, I would rather 
have the actions and the results be the thing that speaks louder than me. Well said, I agree. <laughs> it's like, I have to step outside of myself and be like, if this really is for your company, then let it be for your company and, and do what it is that you need to do in order for people to get how important this is. So I can only speak from my heart and that's why I've decided to step out kind of from behind the veil. I always like to think about the Wizard of Oz where um, he's behind the curtain who goes, do not look at that man behind the curtain. And when I was a little kid, I thought that was hilarious, but it's something like that. Like, let's just step behind the illusion, all the polished pieces and see the work that it takes to make this thing what it is. Well, there's a sales aspect to that too, where a lot of people who are maybe the founder of a business don't like the sales aspect of it. And to me, it's like, mm -hmm. look, that could, you, you, everyone is a salesperson, right? I, I believe that everyone in the world is a salesperson. Everyone is selling something, right? Whether or not they're a designer at a business, they have to get that person to approve that logo. Uh, whether or not they're trying to get a date, they're trying to sell someone, uh, or, or they're actually doing what we think of as sales, which is getting someone to do uh, to, to buy uh, a product or a service uh, in return for, for capital. Like, everyone is a salesperson. I think it's, it's, it, it can be a difficult thing. I don't know if it's imposter syndrome or it's just nerves or, or you know, what's going to happen. Um, but it, it's the, the quicker people realize that, I think the, the better chances they will have to succeed to allow that timing, uh, as, as Tim was talking about, really help them instead of just sitting on it. Because there's plenty of people who just sit back and are like, oh, this, this thing is going to work when it's going to work. And they've really put zero effort into it. And it's like, how is anyone going to know about you if you're not getting that out there? Whether or not that's that's you, Jetty, personally getting out there and saying, look, check out Bobo Collective or or at least marketing it without your name on it. Like it's people aren't going to know about you just because you bought a domain and it's live. Like it's yeah. it's I don't know why people still don't get that. Like, oh, well, the other thing that... in the app store, it's like uh, like there's millions of those things in there now. Like, watch out. Yeah, the other thing that did, I think that is so special about what you were doing and just entrepreneurship in general is that, that the fact that you're putting your heart into heart and soul into this. And founders, they put their heart and soul into the product or the service that they're creating. And, the, and so like, I want the outside people to understand that when you buy something from an early stage startup or founder, like they're putting everything they have into it. Whereas if you go to the grocery store, yeah, a lot of times it's a, how can we save a half a penny by, yeah, like the, the end consumer, consumer's best interest is not in even part of the equation from these mammoth companies out there. But when you buy from an entrepreneur or an early stage company, their heart and soul is in that product. And, and not enough people understand that. I have an example that may be a little crude, but um, a friend of mine used to come and cook at my house. And whenever she wanted to, she'd have like a pot in front of her and she'd pinch her thigh like right by her bottom. And then she'd throw it in the pot and she goes for flavor. And I'm like, oh my God, it tastes like love. But it reminds me of that little extra something in the pot. And uh, that's kind of what a startup is. It's that little extra something that makes that product special. So yeah. I mean, when does that point, change? I don't know what, I, I don't know, but, but like my whole thing, like what, like all the local events that go on, it's really, really important for me that we purchase locally every event that happens and, and the food we, from a local place, the drinks. Exactly. From the, That's yeah. right. Because I mean, in terms of like spending that extra dollar or two, I mean, it's just, it's, it's more important to support that founder um, and, and to give that business a chance because a lot of times it, it's timing and it's just the opportunity. Give, give someone the chance and you don't know who knows who, so how do you define local in that case? Because some people will say, well, they employ a lot of people who live here. So therefore it's a local business. Like how, how do you define local in that instance so that you can do that? Because it's a, it's an interesting piece. Cause you know, it is. you go to your, you go to your local Walmart, you go there, you know, that's, that's what somewhere in Arkansas, you know, that's, that's not local, but yet they have, I don't know, hundreds of employees there that are there working, trying to make a living. Yeah, you know, where where do you define that? And I and I do think it's a it's an interesting line because I think yeah. people just think, oh, you know, you gotta go to your, you gotta buy local everything. Well, there is no, to my knowledge, a local grocery store, you know, for that thing, right? And so you have to not buy local in that case. But 
like I, it, it, there doesn't seem to be a standard as to what I think local that, is. And so that's, yeah, I guess my standard is, so I, I want to say, I don't remember the exact number, but I want to say there's only when you buy a product from Walmart, it's only touched by a human three times as I, I, I think that is the number, the person that puts it in the box, the person that puts it on the shelf, and there might be one other touch point somewhere in that mix. Mm -hmm. And so from that standpoint, yeah, it doesn't touch many people. Whereas if you buy something locally, you know, like you taking that, that pinch of love off of uh, your thigh with, with every ingredients that goes into it, you know? So yeah. like, I guess I would look at it from how many touch points are there from shelf to your, the, to the, to the end product. There used to be a stat that I sent out to people and I don't think people liked it because it was tied to a brewery. And I was um, going to bring this up too. So I think uh, it's super valid. So I think for every beer that you drink from like a local brewery touches 40 people to, to your Walmart three person thing, 40 local people, which is interesting. Cause at that point I was like, look, we should really get behind this microbrewery thing. It's a play. It's like a, um, it's like your new coffee shop. It's your, it's your new place of uh, congregation. And for whatever reason, some people were like, Oh, this isn't right because it's a brewery and breweries are bad. I'm like, whatever. But like it, it is, is that what you're talking about with the, the, the yeah, 40 person? Yeah, I mean, because, that's a, yeah. that's a someone's big number. Grow the hops. Someone's got to grow the barley. Someone, I mean, all those ingredients comes together. I people mean, are so shocked when you hear that number. I mean, yeah. that's 40 people. That's, was <laughs> i would say it's the impact that the person has so how invested are they in local to me means how invested are they in the ecosystem that local ecosystem though so walmart yes they do have jobs here but again do they touch 40 people that live in this neighborhood and what is their impact so i will say for bobo one of the things that we ask for in our allies is what are you investing in the black community and i mean this one <laughs> like so you know, we have lots of different stores that we buy from. Do you have a store in our community? Do you invest in stores in our community? So I think it's the impact, what it is that they do and how they actually affect, excuse me, the local populace is probably most important to me as opposed to where they're situated. Where they're situated. So who they touch probably is like the most important thing when we say local, like, like what's that investment look like? Got it. Um Longtime listener, Alan Hagerman, says, oh, so if I drink 10 local brews, I help 400 people. New math. There you go. I mean, makes sense. So do you think do you think that the local buy local movement is still growing or do you think it's um, kind of hit a roadblock and is is no longer? And neither of you can answer that. Well, I think as Jetty's thinking, I, I think that Jetty, she already answered that question when she was talking about the story. Um because so as long as there's a story tied to it, that that's what that's what people are drawn to and they want to support that story. Whereas, again, like that whole buy local thing, it's because you're buying a story to it. You know, the people that, that are making it, you know, the people that are selling it, you know how that that business is, is uh, reinvesting back into the community. Whereas as companies are at scale, you know, the, the, the ability to tell that story is, is gone. It, it doesn't exist any further. I totally agree, ITA. Um, I think that it's not only that, I think blockchain will have a significant part of that local, buy local thing. Because if you know where something comes from and you can track it from sourcing to sale, you're going to be so much more invested in that product and that company. So I think that may be a piece, technology may be a piece that will help the, the buy local movement kind of grow. I watched a, a talking about sourcing and and you know categorizing things and labeling things. Uh, the great movie Supersize Me Two was a Morgan Spurlock um, film. You guys might remember he ate McDonald's for thirty days, gained twenty two pounds back in the early two thousands. Well, he made a second movie, and this was about him opening his own chicken fast food joint, and he mm -hmm. showed how corrupt the system is and how easy it is to get a label put onto something. So he's like, if something is, is grass fed, doesn't mean it's necessarily grass fed, just means that it was grass fed one day or something like that. Uh, if it's in a, um, uh, something like it, it could, uh, it doesn't have to be in a closed environment. If they just have like a, a two foot opening with a cage around it, but then they're still on their whole facility, they could still get certain, um, free labels. Free, free, yeah. yeah, it, yeah. It's, it's free it's, or whatever. It's crazy. Yeah. Cage free. Yeah. It, it's crazy to think that, 
we believe because we read it that it's it's you know quote unquote safe but then when you really peel back the onion and look at it, you're like oh man this is wild so it, it's i do think there's an education piece to just understanding what you're even getting because i think now people from a um like it's not um grass finished it's always grass something like that from a meat perspective um it, it's just it, it it's absolutely wild to me that there's just such discrepancies on things that we trust so i think there's an angle there for you jetty that is like okay like here's really what this this means what you're getting and and i think it's an opportunity for you to really open the door for a lot of people to say hey look this is you know farm to table for black owned businesses if you will um because i don't think most people actually grasp what farm to table in any business looks like not just food i i, I mean, you can see my face changing because i'm just so flabbergasted that there are so many people that want to spend more time overcoming these hurdles and such like under the hurdle around the hurdle but just jump the hurdle if the hurdle is that people want grass-fed food then give them what they want you know and i think that like when I was talking about that blockchain piece, um, working with Chain Parency has really opened my eyes to how much people crave knowing things. And it's because of behaviors like you're discussing, where instead of just giving people completely grass-fed food so they can get the nutrition that they need, fun fact, protein actually comes from plants and not meat, um, from, from animals. They get it from the grass that they eat. So if you don't give them grass, if you don't feed your beef grass, it doesn't get the nutrients it needs to become full of protein. And therefore you're eating empty calories. And this is why Americans are getting sick. That's neither here nor there. But I think it just kind of understates why people want transparency. Why a company like myself that says, I wanna show you the farm that this came from. You can see for yourself, go on Google earth and watch them, You know, whatever you guys wanna do. But you can see that this farm, it's fair trade and that it's clean and that these raw materials are where that came from. And then it came here, it came on a boat here and this is a manufacturing facility and you guys can look at it. There's the reason why people want that is because these companies that don't care about the consumer are creating that need. They're creating the appetite for transparency because they're being duplicitous about their practices. And it's just sad and it's, it's upsetting to me, but I do think that that by local movement uh, and technology helping to power it is going to be essential in the future because of what they're doing. Yeah, I agree. And, and the thing that's, that's the sad thing is, so Jetty, when you're like become a unicorn and craft uh, or, or, or pick uh, one of the uh, conglomerates, you know, and they, and they dangle over a few, few billy over your head, you know, you, you can't cave because once you once you take that check, then that goes into their portfolio of companies, and then it's gone. So uh, stay true, <laughs> Jetty. If you want to take that, if you want to take the check, take the check. They're like Shark Tank, just sitting there, like take the check right now. I need you to take the check three hundred thousand dollars or two hundred. Like right now. <laughs> but I, I do think that, yeah. you know, but that, that is like the offensive move, though. I mean, it's just like you, you can't tell me that um, I, and I'm, not, I'm not wearing a tinfoil hat or some conspiracy theorist, but you, I mean, like traditional auto manufacturers, you know, there, there was no incentive or oil. There's no incentive to make a more fuel efficient vehicle. There was no incentive to a, eliminate fossil fuels. And, and it's the same thing when it comes to. Uh, you know, if the food conglomerates, you know, they're, they just will continue to buy the companies, buy the patents, buy whatever it is. And so they can just put it in the drawer and then just go business as, business as usual. I mean, soft drinks are the same way. Whenever there's a, a change in the, the trend, Coca-Cola started buying all the sports drinks and then they started buying all the water when consumers went that way. And it's so it's I, just, I mean, what what was the drink, the the truly style, the Vizzy style? Of drink, oh, yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the cells, hard seltzer. Yeah, hard seltzer. I mean. I've, I've had this question for the three or four years since those things have come out. What were people drinking before that? Because just go to the grocery store and the lineup of there is just incredible. But you're right. It's it's your Coronas, your your Michelob Ultras, your, your big brands are getting in there. And, but they weren't producing that before. But then there was an opportunity to flop in there. It's like, wow, I want I want to know what people were drinking before because this is ridiculous. Like it's it's a lot of real estate in that in, in the beer aisle for those type of hard seltzers. Congratulations, companies. <laughs> what, what's something we haven't talked about that you want to talk about? Um, I 
actually am enjoying myself. I was nervous at first, you guys. I was very nervous, but I feel like you've been very welcoming and allowing me to talk about what's most important to me. Um, I think I, I wanted to talk about technology a little bit more because I feel like it's going to be pivotal in creating equal access um, in diverse spaces, right? Because there's a certain belief, especially among the people I walk around, um, that technology is kind of blind. <laughs> it's not, and it is, right? So I think that that'll probably be the equalizer for now before big companies get a whiff and decide that they're going to try to like, you know, turn the tables in their favor. So I kind of want the little man to really start thinking about using things like blockchain and, and you see the excitement around it. I think that's where it's coming from. The excitement around it is that this is the playing field that they'll like level the playing field so that everybody can kind of join in at the table and have the opportunity to, the blockchain is definitely, that is something of value. And again, it's just like the narrative with everything, as soon as pe- people have become programmed to think, as soon as they hear blockchain, that they need to start thinking about cryptocurrency. And that, you know, and it's just like, there's such a difference between those two. And the so the blockchain, I mean, like, so case in point with you, as you source the ingredients and where everything comes from with regarding your product, that is on the blockchain and forever stored. And it's completely transparent. You know, it has nothing to do with with currency or. It's like an appendix of, of everything that's every transaction that's ever happened is, is my understanding. Right. It's a decentralized place that houses all this data that you can go back and fact check, if you will. I mean, that's that's my understanding of the blockchain in my my. Own. I think of it like as the ledger. So if the captain had their log of what like stuff that they had. I was had, trying right? to think of that word, but I couldn't. <laughs> so like say people were making this stuff and they had their little log book and then they would like be like, okay, we're now we're sending, signing it over to you, captain, to take my stuff to America. They have to sign their little log book to keep track of what their freight is. So what blockchain allows um, us to do in supply chain is for us to all be in on that ledger. We get to see those transactions happen, those chains of custodies on um, the transitions of chains of custody happening in live time. So my buyer can see the product that I'm sourcing as soon as the person who scans that QR code scans it. And there's no, I mean, it, it just, it opens up so many possibilities. Counterfeiting, for instance, which is a huge problem overseas. I'm um, just with a, that unique indelible code, just scanning the product once means that whoever is in that chain of custody and whatever permissions you give them is the only person who's allowed to do it. So it just, it kind of eliminates a lot of redundancies and a lot of error, human error. So that's where I think the- Word is straight fraud. Of it is. Same page at the same time, right? Yeah, I, I, I was just listening to uh, a, a This Week in Startups, and it was talking about um, the, the amount of uh, the error in clothing labels yeah, that to say that they're made a certain percentage of cotton, polyester, nylon, whatever the case is, and that uh, so much of the clothes cannot be recycled. And they're just put in landfills because the labels are inaccurate and you, you can't recycle all materials because there's chemical reactions to certain things when they're mixed together and, and labels are wrong so that they can be shipped over to the United States um, oh, without. So. Did you know that the, um, the calorie counting aspect of things has a 20% variable. So if something says it's a hundred calories, it actually could be 120 plus or, you know, plus or minus. That yeah, the label has that discrepancy in there. It's uh, it's pretty scary. Stuff. I think I'm kind of what blockchain is going to do for things like that. So, like, there's too many variables involved, which are humans. Where the variables, like, let's be real, um, eliminate some of those things. Think about how regulatory agencies can function if they can track something from the moment it's created to the moment that it is destroyed, right? Uh, a unique code is unique code. So that have me excited. And I'm a nerd, you know, but I'm still excited about the future of supply chain and what it can provide. So uh, another fun fact on that is um, if something is five calories or less, it doesn't have to be labeled. It can be labeled as right. zero calories. Um, yeah. So there's some so there's some manipulation out there. Yeah. So your spray bottle that says it's zero calories is actually probably five calories or four point nine, let's say. And let's say it has seven hundred um seven hundred um 
X of that, whatever uh, the serving size is that, it could be actually 3,500 calories if that math is right. There's some, some crazy manipulation of the, of the human world in labels. Yeah. What's, what's the best, Jetty, what's, I just want to make sure that everyone that's watching, what is the best way that people can support you? Is it going to your website, bobocollective.com? Um, to go to, and the reason why is because the journey that we're talking about, they're going to see in real time. And so I want them to become vested and really see what we're about and then support. Okay. Well, we'll make, we'll make sure that we get that in the show notes. <laughs> you know, thank you so much. I kind of wanted to 